Hey there, this is Brian Zond, and welcome to my sermon podcast. I'm glad that you're interested in the sermons that I preach here at Word of Life Church in St. Joseph, Missouri. And if you ever feel inclined to help us by supporting us financially, you can do that at our website, wolc.com. Thank you. At the intersection of faith and culture, there's a, a lot of good music some of which can possibly help us with some serious theological reflection. Um, This is the premise behind finding God on your iPod now in its 11th season. And this year renamed as Finding God on Your Turntable because it's the vinyl edition spinning at 33 and a third revolutions per minute. We are... uh, Delving into some of the treasures of classic rock. Uh, This is so fun. Uh, Last Sunday, it was Jimi Hendrix. Today, the artist is none other than The Beatles. The Beatles. The Beatles. What do you say about the Beatles? For crying out loud. Eleven seasons of finding God on your iPod or whatever we call this now. And at last, the Beatles show up. The Beatles. What do you say about them? I don't know. The, the most popular, most successful music artists in history far and away. They've sold almost a billion records. That's bizarre. Almost a billion records. Uh, they were recording, it's really a pretty brief window, between 1963 and 1970. You know, they kind of formed a little earlier in that, the Quarrymen, and they were over in Germany and stuff. But their recording career is 1963 to 1970, during which time they put out 13 studio albums, all of which went to number one, except for the soundtrack to Yellow Submarine. It only made it to number three. Uh, Anybody, that was 1968, anybody see Yellow Submarine in the theater? And I did, yes. I was nine years old. And I saw Yellow Submarine with my dad in the Fox movie theater downtown. East Hill. No, it was the one downtown. What was that one? Trail. That's right. Trail. Thank you, Perry. Thank you. Uh, that's amazing that every album except a, a, a crazy movie, movie soundtrack went to number one. Uh, you know, they, 1964, they're on the Ed Sullivan Show, and they launched the British invasion. And in their wake, you know, the Rolling Stones and the Who and, and Led Zeppelin and all that, the British invasion. If we're talking about 60s music that changed the world, and we kind of have that feeling, 50th anniversary of Woodstock coming up. If we're talking about, if we're talking about 60s music that changed the world, We're mostly talking about Bob Dylan and the Beatles. I think that's true. Um, So, I'm I'm working with the Beatles. What song? Oh my goodness, you've got a treasure trove of possibilities. Uh, Strawberry Fields? Could be. Uh, Eleanor Rigby? Hey Jude? I could preach all these. Come together right now over me. Here comes the sun. You don't even have to preach that one. Just play it. Five times and go home. You know, it's great. It's resurrection, all that. A day in the life. I read the news today, old boy. Uh, 
What other songs could I use? All You Need Is Love, Let It Be, could use any of those. But what I'm doing, I'm going to go, I'm going with a B-side. B-side. I'm going with the B-side of Hey Jude. Released August 26, 1968, Hey Jude, it was their biggest hit. But the B-side was Revolution. Mm, I like that song. Uh, it's uh, written by John Lennon. B-side of Hey Jude. Well, let's just... I'm going to be Ed Sullivan. Ladies and gentlemen, the Beatles! <laughs>
going to be all right. Revolution. Of course, it's written by John Lennon, of course. The most political of the Beatles. You know, you got the John, Paul, George Ring. You got the four Beatles, the Fab Four. You got John, the political Beatle. You got Paul, the cute one. You got George, the spiritual one. You got Ringo, the lucky one. <laughs> yeah, of course, Revolution would be written by John Lennon. He was one of the leading, maybe the leading voice of those in the 60s counterculture who wanted to change the world. Dylan started it out, and then he said, I'm not going to be your prophet. John Lennon took it up. But John, he knew, he had enough wisdom that he knew you can't change the world by destruction, by hate, by totalitarianism. And so he says, you say you want a revolution. Well, you know, we all want to change the world. But when you talk about destruction, don't you know you can count me out? You know, if, you're, if your solution is we're just going to tear it all down, you can count me out. And he says, and if you want money for minds that hate, brother, all I can tell you is you have to wait. And if you go carrying pictures of Chairman Mao, you ain't going to make it with anyone anyhow. So he's not into destruction or hate or totalitarianism. Today, with the B-side of Hey Jude as the soundtrack, I want to preach on revolution. I really wish people knew how truly revolutionary, authentic Christianity is. You think it's tame, you think it's timid, you think it's old, you think it's lame. Oh, be careful. You get too close to Jesus, the real Jesus, the unvarnished Jesus. It'll start a revolution in you. And if you're not careful, it'll spread to other people. And before you know, you've got a full-fledged revolution on your hand. Yes, I really, really wish people knew how truly revolutionary authentic Christianity is. It can change the world. It has changed the world. See, the change has happened. And we assume it. We're accustomed to it. We just assume it was just a natural progression of human development. We don't understand that so much of what we take for granted as good is the result of the Christian revolution Launched by the teaching, the life, the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I mean, if, if you want a nightmare scenario, just think of a world with no Christmas, no Easter, no Jesus Christ, no Sermon on the Mount. It's a much, much more brutal place. I know, I know as well as anyone, the history of the church's flaws and faults. I get it. But still, what the church, one thing the church has done is continue to bring the message of Jesus to generation to generation. And Jesus is the Savior of the world. I mean, with, without the church, I mean, in, in the Western world, that's, that's where hospitals and orphanages and universities and systemized care for the poor, that's where it all comes from. It doesn't come from, it doesn't come from Nietzsche and Voltaire. 
You, you can tell that in the names of hospitals, St. Jude's Hospitals, St. Luke's Hospital. I've never heard of a St. Nietzsche Hospital. Never heard of a Voltaire Hospital. No. So Jesus came to save the world. You believe that? Not to save parts of people for another world. Jesus came to save the world. The world is in trouble, and God loves the world, and so God sends his son into the world to save the world. Not to condemn the world, but to save the world. And not just save parts of people for another world, but to save the world. Jesus comes and he launches, I guess I can use this word, a spiritual revolution. He launches a a revolution of the heart that has far-reaching implications. You say you want a revolution. Well, you know, we all want to change the world. The question is how? For the most part, human beings are tempted to take all the shortcuts. And they want to do it by the sword and by the gun and by bombs and by war and by coercion and by force. Well, you can count me out because I'm following Jesus. So we want to embody and spread the revolution that Jesus launched. But how do we go about it? Well, the Beatles song, Revolution, B-side of Hey Jude, was released August 26th, 1968. 1968. In 60s culture, that's described as the year that everything happened. A lot, very tumultuous year. So it comes out in November, or August, August 26th, 1968, and, uh, you know, everybody's just on pins and needles looking at what's happening, and you say you want a revolution, well, you know, we all want to change the world. I want to tell you about another revolution, another August 26th. This one, not uh, 1968, when I was nine years old. But 2004, when I was 45 years old, August 26th, same date as the release of Revolution. I was, uh, I'd preached that evening in Fort Dodge, Iowa. That morning I was driving back from Fort Dodge, Iowa, back to St. Joseph. I had a group of Master's Commission students with me. I think in my memory it's like three or four of them, something like that. And I had one of them, I had one of them drive for me. Joe Turner. Remember Joe Turner? Uh, Joe Turner. Big Joe Turner looking east and west from the dark room of his mind. Made it to Kansas City, 12th Street and Vine. Uh, I would always say that to him. And, uh, and, I, and I told him, I said, all right, Joe, you're going to drive and all the rest of you are going to be quiet. And we're going to turn off the music because I, I have to get ready for something. What I was doing the next day, I was leading a retreat for our pastoral staff because this is 2004. In 60s culture, everything happened in 1968. In BZ culture, everything happened in 2004. It was tumultuous year. Everything's changing. And I was leading a retreat for our leadership here at We're Live, and I knew that really what I needed to talk about was to try to explain these changes that were happening. And so Joe Turner's driving, I'm in the passenger seat in the front seat, and I've got all these young men with me, and I'm telling them, just be quiet. (laughs) They are quiet, I don't know what they're doing, but they're quiet. 
And uh, I prayed. I just prayed silently. I had my little moleskin in my hand. And I said, God, what should I, what should I say? What should I talk about? And bam, like, I mean, like that. This doesn't happen all the time. God, what should I talk about? And as quick as I could write them down, cross, mystery, eclectic, community, revolution. Just, just. That was a big moment in my life. Those five words, that became known as the five words. The five words were, I guess I would describe them as five saving alternatives to five detrimental isms. So instead of consumerism, cross. Instead of fundamentalism, mystery. Instead of tribalism, eclectic. Instead of individualism, community. Instead of, well, I don't, politicism maybe. Maybe Constantinianism, that's a big word. But it has to do with the idea that you can merge God and state into some kind of partnership. Instead of that, a true revolution. I want to read some scripture. Acts chapter 17, verses 5, 6, and 7. So you see, you want a revolution. So they gathered some troublemakers. This is happening in Thessalonica. These are the people that don't like what's going on. So they gathered some troublemakers from the marketplace. You know, there's always troublemakers around. If you, if you want to get a following of troublemakers, that's one of the easier things in life to do. So they gathered some troublemakers on the internet. No, from the marketplace <laughs> to form a mob and start a riot. They attacked the home of Jason, searching for Paul and Silas so they could drag them out to the crowd. When they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some other believers before the city council shouting, These people who have been turning the world upside down have come here also, and Jason has welcomed them into his house. They are all guilty of treason against Caesar, for they pledge allegiance to another king named Jesus. For those of you keeping score, this is sermon number 3,446. That's how many sermons I've written. I've preached a lot more than that. But this, that's how, this is sermon number 3,446 written sermon. I have preached more sermons from this text, Acts 17, 5, 6, and 7, than any other text in the Bible. It's my most popular. I've preached more sermons. You can search all that stuff. You see, I've got all that information. I've preached more sermons from this text than any other text. I remember the first one. It was in 1982 when I was just 23 years old, just getting started. And I preached my first sermon on the Christian Revolution. That's what I got, the Christian Revolution. And I preached from this text about these people being... Well, what happened is Paul is in Thessalonica. He's with Silas. This is his second missionary journey. Remember, the, he went on the first one with Barnabas. This is the second one. This is with Silas. And they've crossed over from Troas to Greece, northern Greece, Macedonia. And they've come to the leading city of that region, which is Thessalonica. Paul has been there for three weeks proclaiming 
that Jesus is Lord. That is, that a crucified Jew from Galilee is in fact King of Kings and Lord of Lords evidenced by God raising him from the dead. And he's preaching this in Thessalonica for three weeks. Then they form a church. This is one of the first churches in Europe. And they're meeting in the home of one of the first converts, a a man by the name of Jason. Every Jason you've ever met, you've ever known, is named after this guy. That's where he comes from. One of the first Christians in Europe. And this church is meeting in the house of Jason. He's probably influential, probably wealthy, because he's got a big enough house to have a church in it. Paul and Silas are are preaching and making disciples and forming them in the ways of Christ. And of course, there are people that don't like it. Word gets out. Some people are opposed to it. They don't like what they stand for. They don't like what they say. They don't like what they're preaching. They see it as a threat in various ways. And so they go to the marketplace. They get some troublemakers. And they're going to make trouble. And they're looking for Paul and Silas. They want to attack them. They probably are intent on killing them. But they can't find Paul and Silas. So they go to the house of Jason where the church meets. Paul and Silas aren't there, but they attack the house. And they take Jason and some other of these new converts, these new Christian believers, and they drag them to the city council. In this major city of Thessalonica. And this is the accusation they bring to some of the very, very, very first Christians in Europe. This is the accusation they bring against them before the city council. These people who have been turning the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has welcomed them right into his home. He's invited them into his home. And all of these people... They're guilty of treason against Caesar, for they pledge allegiance to another king named Jesus. This is not just, you know, four spiritual laws and how to go to heaven when you die. This is a gospel that is resulting in people rioting against it. This was the basis of persecution for the early church. It wasn't really based on what we would think of as theological matters. They weren't persecuted by telling people how to go to heaven. They were persecuted because they were going around saying, Jesus is Lord. And because of that, you need to acknowledge a new emperor. Not Caesar. Not Tiberius Caesar. Not Nero. Not Domitian. Jesus. Not everybody was on board with that, and so there was, at times, persecutions because of their allegiance to Jesus. They saw it as treasonous. And uh, they saw it as turning the world upside down, as upsetting the social order, the social political order as they had known it. They said, these people are going to upset this whole thing. And they were right. It would, over time. It was happening slowly, but it was happening. Um, Christians were slowly turning the world upside down. That is changing the world, but not by direct action. It's interesting. They never set out to do that. That was never, what do you want to do? Let's change the world. No, they simply said, let's 
band together as a group of people who pledge all of their allegiance to Jesus and just live our life in relationship to that. But it was contagious enough that more and more and more people got on board. And it started changing society. It wasn't a conventional revolution. They weren't taking to the streets. But they were changing the world. They changed the world by simply preaching the good news that Jesus is Lord and by simply being the church. They weren't directly trying to change the world. They were just already being the world changed by Jesus. But that had impact. So the church prior to Constantine, by which I mean, I won't give all the history of that again, the church before the church made the mistaken notion that you could have a Christian emperor and a Christian empire, which you can't, but before the church made that mistake, beginning in the year 312, um, the church had a rather ambivalent attitude toward the emperor. They hoped for a good emperor. Most were bad. Most, in fact, were terrible. They hoped for a good emperor, and they, and they prayed for They did pray for the emperor. They prayed. I pray for the president. I've, I've worked it into my daily liturgy. I pray very sincerely. I pray Micah 6.8. I pray that the president would do what God has commanded human beings to do, and that is to do justice, love, mercy, and walk humbly with God. I pray that every day, that the president would do justice, love, mercy, and walk humbly with God. But in the first three centuries, the church didn't get all worked up about who the emperor was because they already had their emperor. And his name was Jesus. This accusation, in fact, was true. I mean, I'm sure they exaggerated things. I'm sure they misrepresented things. I'm sure that in some ways they even lied about many things. But when they say they proclaim another king whose name is Jesus, that's true. They have pledged their allegiance to someone that's not Caesar. That's true. They have pledged their allegiance to a new king named Jesus. Well, that's true. That's exactly what they did. And that was the basis for their persecution. The early church church changed the world, but, but but not by competing for the apparatus of government. They weren't saying, well, if we can just get enough senators, you know, and that's where the Senate comes from. It's the Roman Senate. If we can just get enough senators, we can change it. They didn't think like that at all. They didn't even think directly about changing the world. They just said, let's just be the world changed. The church is the world as believing in Christ. They weren't trying to change the world. They were just trying to be that part of the world that was already changed by Jesus Christ. But in so doing, they were almost accidentally changing the world. It's not the job of the church to change. Because change, the way we use it, that's a, that's a synonym for save. It's not the job of the church to save the world. That's Jesus' job. Whew! That's a relief. Because if you tell me, hey, Zon, you got to save the world. I say, well, I don't even know where to start. How do I do that? No, it's not my job. It's the job of Jesus to save the world. It's my job to be a part of that world already saved and being saved by Jesus. And just to live with with radical allegiance to that King of kings and Lord of lords. 
It's not the job of the church to change or save the world. That's Jesus' job. The job of the church is to be the church by maintaining its allegiance to Jesus. So I can sum up Christian political theology, which means politics, in three words. Jesus is Lord. Now, the problem is that doesn't hit us very hard. Jesus is president. Not not running for president, not trying to become president. Jesus is president. He is. Jesus is commander-in-chief. You say, oh, no, no, this guy's commander-in-chief. Not for me. I'm a Christian. Jesus is Lord is the ancient, more subversive, radical. Jesus is president. Jesus is prime minister. Jesus is commander-in-chief. That's what got him in trouble. It would get you in trouble today, a little bit today, too. I'm okay with that. Jesus is not campaigning for your vote. Jesus is not running for office. Jesus is not a politician. Jesus is Lord, not elected, appointed. By whom? By God. Amen. That's the gospel. So here's a question. I mean, there is a difference now. I mean, we're talking about revolutionary Christians the first three centuries. They're living under a, a dictatorial monarchy. And we live in a participatory Democracy. So the question is, can citizens in a participatory democracy participate in politics? The answer is yes. We can have political opinions. We can vote. We can register with political parties. We can uh, even run for office. If. Everybody say if. Turn to your name and say, he said if. If we can hold it all loosely enough that it doesn't compromise our allegiance to Jesus. But if your politics are going to tell you who to hate, all I can tell you is, brother, you have to wait. Thank you, John. I riffed on that a little bit. Looking at my notes real carefully because I know I need to stick to them and not not be too. uh... I shouldn't try to ad lib any of this, Perry. (laughs) I can say this much Um, I don't pledge any allegiance to a political party. None. You can if you want. I'm just, this, this is me sharing my heart. Because ultimately, no political party is willing to completely bow to Jesus. And if you doubt that, you can talk to me afterwards and say, well, my political party, da, 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 and I'll say, yeah, but what about that? And you're going, dang, you're right. No political party is willing to completely bow to Jesus. Not Democrats, not Republicans, not labor, not... Green Party, I'll use other countries, not Tories, not whatever. Whigs. 
No political party is willing to completely bow to Jesus, so I won't pledge them my allegiance. I've already, my allegiance is all pledged out. I don't have any of it left. It's all gone to Jesus. So that when I say things like Jesus is Lord, I'm not just, you know, I'm really, I really mean it. That isn't just a glib, empty expression. I mean Jesus is Lord. I pledged all of my allegiance to him. So ultimately, no political party because can, can, is willing to completely bow to Jesus. So I pledge no allegiance to any political party. I've pledged it all to Jesus. And so, but can Christians in a political, that's me, but can Christians in a participatory, participatory democracy participate in politics? Yes, Christians can vote. They can register with a party. They can have political opinions. They can even run for office and hold office if... We can hold it all loosely enough that it doesn't compromise our allegiance to Jesus. But if your politics begin to form you in the ways of hate, if your politics say, all right, you belong to this team and we hate everybody on that team, all I can tell you is, brother, you have to wait. If your political passion begins to pull your heart in the direction of hate, that means it's pulling you away from Jesus, and that means you have to let go of it in Jesus' name. You just have to. Let's let the brother of Jesus talk about this a bit. From James chapter 3, starting in verse 13. This is James, the brother of Jesus. Who, the first pastor of the first church ever. The, the first pastor of the first church of Jerusalem. First church ever. First pastor. Who is wise and understanding among you? You know, in political debate, ultimately in political debate, someone is saying... This is wise and, and we understand. This is, we understand what's best. We have wisdom. Okay. All right. Who is wise and understanding among you? Show by your good life that your works are done with the gentleness born of wisdom. But if you have bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not cover up the truth with boasting and lying. If your politics involve boasting and lying, you can't do it. It's out of bounds. 15-yard penalty. Illegal procedure. You can't do that. James goes on and says, This is not the wisdom that comes down from above. This, that, that is a, a wisdom that is characterized by boasting and lying. It's not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. The wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, without a trace of partiality or hypocrisy. These are the characteristics of true Christian politics. I'll give them to you again. Pure, peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy, good fruits, without a trace of partiality or hypocrisy. If your politics move you in that direction, rock on. God bless you. If not, let it go. Follow Jesus. Be a Christian. And a harvest of justice is sown in peace by those who make peace. You don't get peace unpeaceably. The ends are the means and the process of becoming 
If you're not peaceable, you're not going to ever reach a peaceable end. We all want a harvest of justice. We want justice. And a harvest of justice is sown in peace by those who make peace. But Stanley Hirewals is so wise when he famously says, the first task of the church is not to make the world more just, but to make the world the world. By which he means, if you say, okay, our task is to is just set the world right, make the world just, then you will... Look for all the shortcuts. The ends will justify the means. You'll say, but we're, our number one goal is to make the world more just. And you have your opinion about what that is. And then you pull out all the stops, play all the tricks to get toward that imagined just end. Hirewas is right when he says, no, our first task is not to make the world more just. Our first tra- tra- task is to make the world the world, which means our first task is to be something different than that. If we're not different from a world of boasting and lying and hate and rivalry and competition and us versus them. If we're not different from that, then we've ceased to be the church. So, we're on the cusp of a a new political season. It actually never goes away in America now, sadly. But I mean, you know, debates are starting up and all that. And so, as your pastor, I counsel you, I, I exhort you, guard your heart. Us versus them is the devil's game. And the devil doesn't care which side you play. The devil really doesn't care. Us versus them is the devil's game. And you say, but, but what if we are right? What if we know we're right? That's when the devil's game is most seductive. Because when you know that you're right... You believe that eventually, eventually, if you stay with that, eventually you'll believe that your hate is justified. That your hate is even required. That your hate is even righteous. And then we could do the song, pleased to meet you, hope you guess my name. Because you're being directed by the symphony of the devil. Well, there's nothing revolutionary about hate. Even though you can be seduced to think, yeah, but my hate, my hate is necessary. My hate is justified. My hate is even righteous. The end of that story is meet the new boss, same as the old boss. Which I could have used that song. The Who's Won't Get Fooled Again, which is actually a far better song, but it's eight and a half minutes long. So, the revolution of Jesus is launched in unconditional love radical trust, and self-sacrifice. Nothing else is really revolutionary. Nothing else will really change the world. That's my sermon. The revolution of Jesus is launched in unconditional love. If it doesn't have the marks of loving God, loving neighbor, loving enemy, unconditionally, it's not revolutionary, it's not from Jesus. The revolution of Jesus is launched in unconditional, radical trust. I mean, when the day is done, what we're saying is we trust God. We're not trusting Democrats. We're not trusting Republicans. We're not trusting polls. We're not trusting Congress or Senator. We're trusting God. You say you're naive. I say I'm a believer. The revolution of Jesus is launched in unconditional love, radical trust, and self-sacrifice. That's what the take up your cross and follow me business is all about. 
The revolution of Jesus is launched in unconditional love, radical trust, and self-sacrifice. Nothing else is really revolutionary. Nothing else will truly change the world. Amen. Stand up with me. John Lennon, Jesus, and James all contributed to this sermon. So let's again pledge our full allegiance to Jesus Christ and His revolution of love. And let's come to what is sometimes in Scripture called the love feast. Where Jesus changes the world by allowing Himself to be broken and poured out. And the powers of this world will say that's foolishness. But no one's gathering in the name of Caligulus or Nero or Domitian or Tiberius today. But 2,000 years later, more than a billion are gathering in the name of Jesus. And he's changed the world. And so we're going to invite you to come to the table and participate in his body.